Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michelle Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about historical films and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. In this episode, we talk about the Netflix series The Crown, now in its fifth season. The Crown is inspired by real events during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II in the last half of the 20th century. The series is created by Peter Morgan based on his play, The Audience. Morgan also wrote the screenplay for The Queen, directed by Stephen Frears. Joining us in this conversation is Reverend Dr. Teresa Cooley. Teresa Cooley is a Unitarian Universalist minister who has served congregations across the United States. She is an avid observer of human communities, group dynamics, social systems, and ways in which trauma affects individuals and communities. Reverend Cooley is the author of the book, Transforming Conflict, which explores ways in which conflict may be used as an opportunity for learning and growth. We begin with a recap of The Crown seasons one through four. For those of you who watched The Crown, you recognize that a new actress is cast as Queen Elizabeth II and members of her family every two seasons, marking the passage of time in the story. In seasons one and two of the series, Claire Foy portrays the young Elizabeth and the emerging leader. We're introduced to Princess Elizabeth's family as they manage her engagement and marriage to Philip Mountbatten, played by Matt Smith. The young princess ascends to the British throne after the untimely death of her father, King George VI, played by Jared Harris. The new queen devotes herself to her duties and shapes her symbolic role as head of state the church, and her family during a time of dramatic change culturally and politically for her country and the Commonwealth. The traditions that have shaped the Queen's predecessors no longer apply as the electronic media age is emerging. In seasons three and four, Olivia Coleman portrays Queen Elizabeth II. Her children are now entering adulthood. This adds another layer to the Queen's challenges in preserving the continuity and symbolic legacy of the monarchy. England also elects its first woman prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, played by Gillian Anderson. The prime ministers and the queen's styles and backgrounds make for a prickly relationship between the country's two most powerful women. Seasons three and four also introduce Diana Spencer, portrayed by Emma Curran who becomes the wife of the prince and future King Charles, played by Josh O'Connor. The new princess brings youth and glamour to the royal brand, but at a price. As Princess Diana's celebrity rises, the royal family's popularity plummets. Cracks in the marriage become visible. The queen makes it her duty to intercede to avoid scandal and to preserve the monarchy and legacy of the crown. In season five, we are now nearly 40 years into Queen Elizabeth II's reign. The queen is portrayed by Imelda Staunton. Jonathan Price plays Prince Philip. Prince Charles is played by Dominic West. And Princess Diana is played by Elizabeth Debicki. Duty continues to be the primary theme in this story and is joined by concerns around diplomacy, democracy, and divorce. 
Criticisms towards the crown from prominent figures in the UK have intensified following the death of the real-life Queen Elizabeth II on September 8, 2022. Netflix has agreed to add a disclaimer in the marketing of the Crown series as a work of fiction inspired by real events during Queen Elizabeth II's reign. Michonne and I have always watched the Crown as historical fiction, noting its lessons about leadership, power, and family dynamics, just as in Shakespeare's plays that feature monarchies like Macbeth, King Lear, and Hamlet, they reveal the power struggles and human virtues and flaws of leadership. This is why we've invited Reverend Dr. Teresa Cooley to join us in a conversation about the role and expectations of leaders as seen in the Crown dramatic series. Welcome, Teresa, to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be with you. Let's start with the United States. You know, the United States is a democracy. So what is the fascination which, with British royalty that keeps U.S., that's us, audiences coming back to watch The Crown and other films about the British aristocracy? You know, I've been thinking about this since you posed the question earlier. I, I think that it's because we have this fantasy that leaders can do everything. We want to find leaders that can fix things for us, that can make things okay. And particularly, I think for Americans to have leaders who are glamorous and have money, all these things that American culture worships, unfortunately, um, then that makes it even more enticing. The idea that there's this all-powerful person that can do everything and make us all feel better. And I think Elizabeth definitely has over the years done that job really well, making people feel better about what's happening in the world. One of the overarching themes of the dramatic series, The Crown, is that the crown means duty, especially to the character of Elizabeth. What is the role of duty in leadership today? Is duty an outdated value or has it morphed into a different interpretation as a leadership value? Well, let me explain a little bit about the theory of adaptive leadership so that I can talk about that a little differently. Um, so adaptive leadership presumes that that leadership is a verb. It's something that we do, and it's something that we do together. And so this idea that we're going to have certain people that are leaderly, you know, we always fixate on particular aspects, like particularly male aspects, um, that are supposed to make them automatically leaders. And instead, adaptive leadership says that it's really about how we come together and accomplish something together. And so the concept of duty really fits in really well with that because what she's really, her lifelong focus is an outer direction. It, it's not about herself. It's not about promoting herself ever. It's always about this third thing, this purpose that she serves. And that's what adaptive leadership focuses on as well, that what's important is what is our purpose as opposed to who is doing what and what do I have control over? So that kind of fixation, I think, has been her saving grace over that many decades because she's always made it about something else. Now, that has had costs, as we know from watching the series and watching her life, but it also has given her a sense of great purpose that she is always her guiding light. I, I have. Go ahead, Michelle. Well, I had a follow up question. Do you think the series raises the duty part over the adaptive leadership part, or is there some oh, dance that's going on? Well, there's a little bit of a dance, but I think that it definitely makes that primary and it definitely shows how that makes her family suffer and herself, how her, her marriage suffers and those sort of things. But there's also a way in which it helps her become an adaptive leader in particular circumstances. So that scene in particular where she's confronting Thatcher about um, needing to... Um, work with other leaders to boycott South Africa. 
Um, what she's doing in that is classic adaptive leadership. She's bringing all kinds of other people together so that it's not about her. It's not about her trying to use her power, although she obviously knows that she has that. It's about assembling a group of people that have a goal that hopefully will influence this one leader. And in some ways that really backfires, right? Because she, the Margaret Thatcher feels ganged up on. And Margaret Thatcher feels like she has to prove herself by rejecting anything that they bring to her. But Margaret's, I mean, um, Queen Elizabeth's attempt is really to bring other people together to reinforce her argument rather than, again, to make it about her. And she puts it in the context of her duty to the Commonwealth, which, of course, for us is an incredibly complicated and and not very pleasant concept. Um, but in her mind, that Commonwealth is a family. It is about her really bringing people together to so that everybody can be successful. Again, that's a kind of adaptive leadership idea. That's fascinating to think about a monarch uh, exhibiting adaptive leadership when the tradition has been they're almost like gods, right? Um, and I think uh, one of the things that is interesting is as you go through the series, you see different displays of power through three different women. Uh, you've talked about how um, it is exhibited in terms of the portrayal of Queen Elizabeth II. Then there's Margaret Thatcher, who she's an elected leader, so she's got a different kind of accountability, of course, because she hopefully she and her party get elected again. And then you have someone like a Princess Diana, who is brought in in some ways to kind of like change the brand or, or polish up the brand, but her influence and her power is in a different sphere and a different way of operating. Could you talk a little bit about how you see those uh, different kinds of power operating in these, uh, well, you've talked about Queen Elizabeth, but in terms of Thatcher and Diana? Yeah, I think the other concept that's helpful to think about is is that the context is all important. So um, Margaret Thatcher is taking power at a time when the economy is completely crumbled, when um, things are completely falling apart. And so her style of leadership, of taking command and insisting on her way or the byway, um, is very much in response to people being desperate for that kind of leadership at a time when they feel like they're unmoored. And so she, she ends up, I think, I think they were trying to set her up, frankly, in the beginning. And she surprises people by taking hold in the way that she does. And the only way she can do that is to get rid of her entire cabinet and start all over again with people that she trusts. Again, it's about who do you surround yourself with and who do you, who do you feel like you can do things with? So in some ways, she's also practicing some adaptive leadership techniques, but her downfall is that she doesn't really follow through with that. She still thinks it's about her. She still thinks it's about her only ideas. And so in one context, her leadership really soars because people are feeling in such disarray and then they feel the effects of that. So then the context is, oh, you know, the miners are completely have lost their jobs and all these other things that she's completely ignored. There's that horrible line in the series, which may or may not be true, where she says, you know, it's all about people getting their own thing first and then maybe they'll help other people. So right. yeah, that's her. Yeah. Not <laughs> the finest she, moment. <laughs> right. Even if she'd never said that, that's certainly how she operated. And so that then has its own negative consequences, which creates a different context in which she then fails. And then with Diana, you've got this context where the royal family has never understood media. They've never understood how, how to manipulate that, how to work it in their favor. They're always fighting with it, right? I mean, it's right, particularly yeah. early, they're fighting with it. And so when Diana comes along and kind of instinctively knows how to use it, I don't think she deliberately set out to do that, but she knows how to play with it. And again, it's about context. It's a context in which she can shine because she can be seen all over the world instantaneously. You know, so if she had come along 20 years before that, before there was all this media where she could be seen all the time, who knows what would have happened because then it would have been in print. 
oh, Diana mm-hmm. was seen with these other people. Oh, Diana was, you know, I think that would be an entirely different version of how people saw Diana. It was all about how she was seen. Yes. How she looked as opposed to how she behaved and what purpose she was serving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She certainly in some ways could even be like the spotlight in the way she could highlight designers, artists, causes. And we're going to, yeah, we're going to see more of that. I'm sure in season five. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, and I think she does then know, particularly with her charity work, and I call it charity work because it's not systematic change, but it's, but she really knows how to use her persona to shine a light on things that most people didn't pay attention to. Right. And when she comes to the States, she visits a hospital that nobody had ever given any attention to. So that kind of thing is, I think, one of the best uses that she makes of her celebrity but then the downside of that is everything she does is always on display. Yeah. Yeah. She, she totally loses any sense of privacy for sure. Or any sense of self. Yeah. I think. yeah. yeah. Well, as um, a promoter once told me, it's their job, the promoters, to believe the hype, not you. <laughs> right. Right. And I, you know, who knows again how much the series is faithful to what actually happened, but the ways in which Queen Elizabeth never interacts with her before their marriage. And again, who knows if that's actually true, but, but that was a failing of Elizabeth's leadership. Mm -hmm. If she had been able to really help Diana understand what was asked of her and what this would require of her, who knows, she might've become a different kind of of leader herself. So there's that almost set up from the very beginning. Yeah. And you always have talked about how important it is for leaders to nurture other leaders, that that's a big part of the job. Absolutely. Right. Right. Thinking about who's going to come next is always important. Yeah. One of the things that intrigues me about the crown is how you see the character Queen Elizabeth who was born into her role, she didn't choose it. And actually, she wasn't supposed to be queen. Her father wasn't supposed to be king. Right, yeah. Um, Because of the abdication, things changed. Um, She has to still, she has to now navigate her relationships as a daughter, you know, to her mother, as a mother to her own children, as a sister to Margaret, wife to Philip, along with her symbolic role as sovereign and manage the historical and symbolic relevance and survival of the monarchy for her country and, you know, that commonwealth, for better or worse. Um, She has a symbolic meaning to the commonwealth, good and bad. She is also the head of the Church of England. So the crown's power comes from being an enduring symbol of British identity and tradition. How does symbolic leadership ground and sustain communities in times of change and upheaval, even today? And what are the limitations and pitfalls of a symbolic leadership or leader? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question, looking at particularly over the span of her life and her reign. So in the beginning, again, it's all about context, right? So David was um, presumed to be the the future king for so long, and he really didn't want to be. He really didn't want to be. He wanted to live a different kind of life and would have made a terrible king, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinions. And so in that context where he was so dissolute and so extravagant and, you know, only focused on his own needs, her father comes in and establishes an entirely different kind of identity. And that's where duty comes. That's where duty has this huge, huge role for him in contrast to his brother, in contrast to what was actually the norm for for prior kings. Um, And so because of that context, then Elizabeth is imprinted on this concept of duty from the very beginning. So that's foremost for her. And that 
plays well for her over time until you come to things like, you know, the visit of Margaret to America, I think is so fascinating. And this whole idea that Margaret always thought she would be a better queen than, than Elizabeth. And Elizabeth <laughs> yeah. tended to agree with that, right? From many times, because she knew how to do the glamorous thing. She knew how to do the, she knew how to talk to people. She knew how to communicate well. And, and so there is that one particular context where she interacts with LBJ. That's Helena Bonham Carter playing right, Margaret. Right, exactly. And she succeeds beyond anybody's expectations because she knew how to play to LBJ. Mm-hmm. She knew how to do that extravagant, fun, sexy sort of thing, which, of course, Elizabeth could never do in a million years. But she now thinks that she could be queen like that. She could go and do things like that all the time. And of course, everybody's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do that. So once again, it's all about context. So in certain places, she shines and she really helps the crown. And on, in other ways, she's a total detriment, of course. And, and Elizabeth holding steady, and that's another adaptive leadership, holding steady throughout her time. And again, completely focused on duty, sometimes to everybody's detriment. But that allows her to endure in a kind of way that Margaret never would have been able to do. Yeah. And, and the part of the symbolic role, meaning when things get a little chaotic, people can look and get their grounding. Do you, would you call it grounding that she provides? In Absolutely. That? Mm-hmm. Right. That sense of solidity. And, and also she actually knew how to do symbolic things, I think kind of intuitively, like way back early in the series when, um, when there's that explosion at the coal mine and she goes and visits in order to show that she cares. And even earlier than that, people were prevailing upon her to do that. And she was like, no, that's not my job. But finally she realizes that she has that symbolic purpose mm-hmm. and that that serves to make everybody feel better. She didn't change anything by visiting, didn't change their lives, but it made them feel better. Yeah. I was reading something recently that says that one um, important part of leading is to make change feel safe. And I feel in the way the monarchy is portrayed in the series, it provides a sense of continuity while the world really is changing a lot during that reign, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the concepts of adaptive leadership is that change is always loss. Change mm-hmm. always represents a loss. Yeah. And so the question is, how can you manage the environment enough so that that loss is not overwhelming? And so they talk about disappointing people at the rate they can stand. Mm. <laughs> because you're always going to disappoint people. Yes. <laughs> always that loss. And the question is, how can you make that tolerable for people so that they're willing to engage in what they need to engage in? Yeah. yeah. So I think she does that pretty well. That would not be a winning campaign message for a <laughs> politician. <laughs> it's the truth, but you know. <laughs> well, let's talk about priorities. Let's say, um, especially family. Putting family first is often seen as a relatable and moral boon for a leader. But it can also be a double standard, especially for women who are expected more than men to be more nurturing and to choose family over commitment to a job or vocation. And and in some cases, the series puts the onus or blame on Elizabeth for prioritizing her duties to the monarchy over her family. What do you see as the role of family in the leader's life? Yeah, I think she, she, there's that line in one of the later episodes where she says, the most important things to me are the family of the empire and the family of my, my own personal family. And the order she puts those in is significant, right? So even though she understands the Commonwealth as family, that's always first. That's always first. And so she's always willing to sacrifice her own personal family for that cause. And she keeps trying to explain to them that's why she's doing it. 
but over and over and over again, they are sacrificed to that cause. And she is sacrificed to that cause. She knows that she is paying a price for it as well. So I think that it's an interesting question to think about how a man would have operated in that sphere. I think that a man would have been less questioned about his choices. I think a man would have been able to make that kind of stand without it being seen as, you know, oh, what a terrible father you're being, or oh, what a terrible husband you're being. You know, I think Queen Elizabeth I, I mean, not the first, her mother, um, totally subsumed herself to her husband and then to her daughter. And so that was the expected thing of that. Um, But I think that, yeah, she took a lot of criticism, but I think also people were able to tolerate it because she was a woman. So I keep thinking about what Charles is going to encounter as he goes forward as king. I don't think he's going to have the same success that she did because he doesn't know how to hold that space and he doesn't know how to hold that sense of caring about others that she portrays, that she has always given. You know, And again, I think that's because they see her as a woman. And I don't know that they would have seen that in a male person. And I think the things that she encounters throughout that incredible long reign of this prime minister and that prime minister, I don't know if a male king would have been able to do what she did in terms of never interfering. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought That's about a thought. That. Yeah. Yeah. About, about knowing, as they say, you know, when to push and when to pull back. And that's yeah. my stereotype of males. I recognize. <laughs> but as a result, no one ever knew what her thoughts were about key issues. Yeah. Right. Until that one significant time. And then she paid a monstrous price for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for Michonne and me, the most interesting parts of the series have been looking at the kind of political situations that she had to navigate. Um, You mentioned the South Africa uh, when they were debating whether or not to boycott and uh, in protest of apartheid in South Africa and the tension she had with Thatcher around that. Uh, we were fascinated with also uh, what was going on with Egypt and Nasser, but in particular, we liked the season two, episode eight, uh, where Queen Elizabeth travels to Ghana. This is at a time when African nations and other nations in the Commonwealth were pushing for their own sovereignty and resisting being uh, under colonial rule. And Kwame Nkrumah was one of the major voices of that movement. And uh, in at the same time, you've got the Soviet Union and the United States vying for global influence. And Africa is one of those major theaters for uh, where that power struggle was taking place. So Elizabeth, uh, the queen goes to Ghana. She is aware of all of this being, as you were saying, contacts. Both of these leaders have symbolic power. Um, and it seems that the series creators also wanted to communicate how as leaders, by doing something as simple as dancing a foxtrot together, they could de-escalate that conflict, that tension that was going on, um, both personally and globally. And the man is still leading. Right. He's still leading the dance. (laughs) So so talk about um, how using that soft power rather than aggression can be used to manage conflict and and particularly as we see it portrayed in that series in that episode yeah i'm i would love to know if that's actually a a real story i don't know if you've done enough research to know if it's sort of a story Um, it is sort of a real story there's a photograph okay okay because in some if you if you thought she was an incredibly manipulative person, which I don't necessarily, then you would rec- then she would have recognized that that completely changed that situation. That she ended up undermining his authority 
by showing her graciousness, by showing her willingness to reach out, to connect, to actually touch a black man, which all kinds of people were like, what, how could she possibly do that? Right. Yeah. And um, by her doing, again, I think this comes from her concept of the Commonwealth as family. So she thinks of him as family. She thinks of him as somebody to reach out to that way. And so um, it's, I mean, she exercised an entirely different kind of power by doing that and very successfully changing that whole dynamic. And the media caught it too, caught that moment. Yes, a media moment. Right, right. This brings us to our break. For our listeners, you've been enjoying Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now to Queen and I will go back to our conversation with Teresa Cooley, Unitarian Universalist minister and author of Transforming Conflict. So Teresa, in your professional work, um, you not only help others uh, address conflict and learn adaptive leadership and um, about nurturing other leaders, but you yourself, I mean, you are an example. You're modeling that. You practice that yourself. And now you've published a book about this, particularly with regard to conflict and how to make conflict uh, creative and productive versus something to be avoided. How do you see conflict um, and nurturing leaders and the adaptive leadership? Talk about how your book addresses those leadership challenges that are portrayed in The Crown. Yeah, so the biggest challenge that I have in trying to teach that understanding of conflict to people is overcoming their fantasy that they can control what's happening. And that's that's big. We all have that fantasy, right? If I just say this exactly the right way, yeah, then I'll be able to you know, change their mind and everything will be okay. And when does that ever work? Right. It's, we still do it all the time, but it never works. Only in dramas and not even then sometimes. (laughs) So convincing people that it's everybody's work to do is really countercultural. It's really hard. And since the book, I'm getting calls from congregations that are in super high levels of conflict. And, And I have to say to them, I'm not a fixer. I'm not somebody who comes in and intervenes. I'm somebody who teaches people how to do it themselves. And so if you want to take the time to do that, that's what we can do together. But I'm not going to come in and be an interventionist with you because it doesn't work. Right. It may kind of temporarily take the steam out of something. So how we kind of walk ourselves down from our convictions and ask ourselves, is there something I can learn from this rather than, I'm right, and I'm going to make sure that everybody knows I'm right, and I'm going to make them know that that's the case, which, again, never works, um, is is a very difficult skill to learn. And oftentimes I encounter people who are like, well, I can't talk to that person I disagree with because then they're going to assume that I agree with them. So being in relationship with people, even when you disagree, not not having to agree. It's not about agreement. It's not about coming to everybody thinks the same thing. It's about how can we be in relationship in a way that is sustainable when we're actually learning from one another's differences. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm trying to teach in the book, um, how it relates to what we're talking about with Elizabeth. I think that um, she she is able to recognize that it's not always about her being right. Again, she doesn't want her opinion to be the one that prevails, regardless of whether she thinks it's right. Yeah, and those are some, for me, some of the best moments in the series when I see her and other leaders, because I think it happens with Churchill too, make a shift. You know, see, they were wrong. (laughs) 
they they didn't really understand what they were facing and they needed to change how they saw it and how they reacted to what was going on. So as you you were saying, uh, context is really, really important. Yeah, during the um, pandemic emergency, the word pivot was often heard um, and tossed around and everyone talked about how do we pivot. And right. You can see how that contributed to Boris's downfall, right? <laughs> because yeah. he wasn't able to pivot into somebody who actually looked like he cared. Let's talk about that other prime minister featured in The Crown. We go back to Margaret Thatcher. She shows up in season four of the series. And one of the constant narratives of Margaret Thatcher, including the character, is how she credits her father for her work ethic. You know, she worked in her father's grocery store. Her father was a local community figure. Whereas the queen inherited everything, you know, through generations and generations, power, um, wealth, etc. But in regards to Prime Minister Thatcher, one scene that sticks out for me constantly is her cooking for her all-male cabinet. What do the, this woman's portrayal communicate about expectations of women in these traditionally male-dominated spaces? Well, and, and in that time, of course, she was the only woman. And I, I think that's the one that sticks out to me is when she's talking with the queen about, are you going to have women on your cabinet? She's like, absolutely not. <laughs> so they're, they're really run by their emotions. So she has bought into this gender stereotype in a big way. And I, my guess is that that kind of cooking for people, and I think that's true. I think she did that was a way of her utilizing her feminine power to bring people around a table. And because uh, women know this, right? We know yeah, that, yeah. that you can create a different kind of community by cooking for people and bringing food to the table. And that even though that's a subservient thing, it actually makes her powerful by being able to, to create that, that community that comes together by virtue of that. She is not afraid to use those feminine qualities. She will not use the other feminine qualities, you know, but she will use that and her, and I think her obsession with presenting a perfect image, you know, there's hardly a scene with her where she's not spraying hairspray on herself. And, and she had to have done that to maintain that perfect, um, you know, that's that clearly font, Yeah. Right. She <laughs> thought she had to do that in order to not show herself to be super feminine. I also saw the ser- the serving of food, her cooking the food. I saw that as a power move mm-hmm. because she controls the menu. Right. She controls how much you eat. She controls who gets served first. And as you said, she's building this community around food, which we know is pretty effective. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're not seeing her as threatening, so to speak. Yeah. And what I- she cooked was significant too. She cooked a working class meal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just as a sidebar, I remember when I first became a supervisor and I was asking you, Michonne, for some hints and you told me always have food at the meetings. (laughs) It's a winner. Good food. Don't have bad food. Then the meeting goes down. (laughs) So we're talking about, okay, she, she prepared working class meals and Class is a dominant theme in every British drama. The Crown is no exception to that. So talk a little bit about how those class differences might have contributed to the conflicts as they're portrayed between the Queen and the Prime Minister Thatcher. Because, you know, we noted that the Queen, you know, aristocracy, women often didn't get to go to university, but you know, you have the crown. Whereas with Thatcher, she was an Oxford grad and she gets to be prime minister. So talk a little bit about class in in the crown. Well, I think it's harder for us as Americans to really grasp that because it's such a stuck system in so many ways there. 
that, I mean, if you have enough money here, you can succeed. And there, that's obviously true to some extent. Their, their newest prime minister probably wouldn't have been named if he did not have a lot of money. But it's also true he went to, he, he had that whole upper class education, you know, so I think the fact that he could plug into that made a huge difference. So um, I, they're, they're very striated. They're very different experiences. And so you've got that upper class experience where there's that scene where Margaret goes to see them in Scotland and they live in different worlds. They're, mm-hmm. they're going off and hunting elk and they're going off stalking. And- stocking stocking <laughs> up and they're and they're playing parlor games and they're doing all these things that are, that are it's they might as well be speaking a different language to margaret thatcher and to her husband and they have to actually read the instructions <laughs> in order to figure out how to get by and there are things that they can do that other people can't possibly do so they can have public affairs you know that that can all happen you can especially men couldn't live as playboy a life as possible they until recently they never got really skewered for that what would happen if margaret thatcher had had an affair that would have destroyed her career i think and the things that the upper class people can presume and the things that working class people can presume are totally different so she feels margaret thatcher feels like she has created her success which is a very different understanding than stepping into something you have to make successful. So they don't, I don't think they even hardly speak the same language. Yeah. That scene in Scotland just said it all at the cocktail hour because, you know, Margaret Thatcher and her husband get dressed for cocktails. You know, we know what a cocktail dress is here, right? Right. And she gets there and they're like in their pajamas and <laughs> at booties. But, you know, if Margaret Thatcher in that scene had gotten the email, what we call it, gotten the email or the notes saying, oh, it's not a dressy affair, it still would not have worked for her because, right. you know, she is not one of them. No, she had no idea how to interact with that group. If she had worn completely different clothes, it would, like you say, it would not it have wouldn't work. It would not. It was her standoffishness and her fear, and I think her her being intimidated by them. And yeah, there, there was nothing in that that would have worked in here. Yeah. Sometimes we see the crown as kind of presenting a leadership journey, um, and like we talked about the Claire Foy version of Elizabeth being like the emergent leader. And she gets mentored and nurtured by Churchill as kind of grandfatherly and helps her uh, get uh, an understanding of her role. And then we have with Olivia Coleman, now she's the established leader. She's got a little sense of what her style is. She still makes mistakes, but she's not the newbie anymore. And with folks like um, Thatcher, she might even like go to toe to toe in her own way. But then there's also, I've been here and there's a little bit of her helping new prime ministers understand the ropes as well. So talk about that leadership journey. Like what, what happens at different stages of leadership as you come into it, get established and then start kind of helping others find their leadership grounding? Yeah, I think that that Churchill, of course, schooled her in this idea that duty was most important and that she should not be inserting herself into that, into anything political. And that's what she was taught from the very, very, very beginning. And she held on to that. Like I was saying, duty was imprinted on her. And so she, I think that became her lodestone throughout her leadership by having that always to turn to, she could figure out what she was supposed to do in the circumstances. And so being able to then grow and change and be able to assert her authority with her husband, who was being a dog, (laughs) being able to say, no, we do not divorce. And here's, here's what you, you tell me what you need to keep this going because this is going to have to keep going and um, asserting her authority. Then later on, with 
I think her kids in a different sort of way. I, I think that that whole way in which she understood herself as a mother is just heartbreaking to me. You know, it's just so hard to watch how much, you know, she understood that Charles was marrying somebody he didn't love and she tried to stop it. If, if that's true, I don't know if that's true, but being able to see, like see how he struggled at school and not be able to do anything about it see how he struggled in his relationships, not being able to do anything about it. It was her mother who stepped in, right? Mm -hmm. Who stepped in and said, you have to stop this relationship. So um, I think she, that's where I saw her struggling the most, um, where she really didn't know what to do. And, but otherwise, I think holding on to that vision of my job is to hold this together to make sure that people understand that there's still something to this, frankly, fantasy of an English Commonwealth um, that I have to portray all the time is what makes her successful for so many years mm-hmm. over different roles. Yeah. I would see it very difficult for a mother. I mean, it's bad. It's difficult with young children to be able to predict or raise or protect them but she has to manage the children through their adult years as well. I mean, some people talk, people talk about their empty nest syndrome or, or empty nest moments. She doesn't get an empty nest moment ever. Yeah. Except in the latest years, you know, where she finally ended up finally making limits on Andrew after, after letting him do whatever he wanted for so many years. And, and unfortunately making life so incredibly difficult for Megan. And can you see, I can just see that, right? You can see Megan trying to come into that kind of culture. And it's the same thing of wearing the cocktail dress while they're wearing their boots. You know, there's just an entirely different understanding of what family life is supposed to be, what supportive relationships are supposed to be. You know, they're just different languages. Yeah. And unfortunately, there won't be a crown seven and eight for us to take it to right. the next level. <laughs> Unfortunately or fortunately, yeah. right. depends yeah. on depends on how you see it. Yeah. Um, let's go back to, I think, underlining all these stories is the media and the role of the media. Um, in this series, we see how the media is shaping the brand of the Crown's royal family starting with Elizabeth's coronation. And that was like the first time the public was able to see a coronation uh, was on television. Um, it was produced by Elizabeth's husband, Prince Philip. And we also see the queen giving her a Christmas message, somewhat reluctantly, little uncomfortable on television as well. Then there's the story of Princess Margaret's photographs by um, Anthony Armstrong Jones, which becomes a media story because she broke with tradition with the usual, you know, the stage portrait with the tiara and the pearls and the silk gown. And when Princess Diana comes along, she exceeds and overwhelms everything with the media attention, which we mentioned before, and that creates a dynamic and dramatic shift for the family. Uh, So... What happens when leadership becomes attached to the attention from media that can create a celebrity out of someone who wasn't before? Um, How should leaders respond to the expectation um, now that they have, it seems, to charm as well as entertain? in addition to leading. Yeah, I don't think Elizabeth ever understood that. Ever, ever, ever. She she was so antagonistic to the media and, and not in a horrible way, but she just didn't understand that she could use that to a better effect, except maybe a couple of times. But she constantly was um, surprised by the public interpretation of what she was doing and would only do a course correction after it became completely apparent to her that this was not going to fly with the public. And so 
using and except that one instance again back to South Africa which is so interesting why that really really hooked her in a way where she did proactively use the media she did reach out to the New York to the I mean to the Times London Times and have that interview that never took place um so I think she just she saw it as something she had to tolerate rather than something that she could use and I think Diana instinctively understood something completely different about that. And it was bewildering to her, to Elizabeth throughout that time, even up until her death. She didn't understand why she had to show up after Diana died in the way that she didn't show up in the beginning. So I don't think she ever understood the media. Uh, so I think the question, question is for us as leaders is how do we work with it mm -hmm. as opposed to against it? Yeah, for sure. Can and, we and, work with it? <laughs> and I'm just saying, yeah, is, is it possible? It's a moving target, right? You right. know, there's so many different outlets. And I was reading a piece the other day about, you know, is FaceTime going to, I mean, is Facebook ever going to go down? You know, what are the challenges facing it? What's going to happen with Twitter now? That's an interesting story. So if you've been using Twitter to make that your focal point for communication. What do you do when that's gone? What do you do when that's shifted? So you're constantly having to change yeah. given what's going on now. I think one of the things that we have noticed that even in our democracy, um, there's almost like a deification of leaders. And then when they show themselves to be flawed or make mistakes, we demonize them. <laughs> Um, so what makes us deify leaders and demonize them when they fail? Is it possible for a leader to just be human? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I really don't. It's, it's always about putting your needs aside mm -hmm. in order to help serve others. And so, um, yeah, I think that that happens all the time. We put people on pedestals so we can knock them off the pedestals. And that, again, makes us not have to take responsibility. Mm. You know, the way in which we want Joe Biden to fix absolutely everything that's wrong with this country, and when he doesn't, we're going to, you know, completely move away from him, then we don't have to take responsibility because it's Joe Biden's fault. Or on the other side, we're going to elect Barack Obama as the first African-American president and think that that's going to fix everything for black Americans or for everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just this avoidant, what, what adaptive leadership calls work avoidance. Mm. Well, I guess it goes back to our first question about the fascination with monarchy because a democracy does require all in. You know, everybody, all hands to the pump, as they say. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to have sunk in yet that that's what it, that right. we are the government, that we are the ones we've been waiting for, has been said, right? Right. We've never learned that essential lesson of democracy. to our lightning round. <laughs> um, this, these are questions we ask uh, all of our, our um, podcast guests, um, and they've adapted over time as context has changed. So we also are you know, good about being adaptive. But the first one is one that's pretty constant, and that is, Teresa, if you could travel back in time, where would you visit and why? Oh, I... I am obsessed with England right after the First World War um, because everything changed. Everything was topsy-turvy with that war. And, you know, the aristocracy suffered the, um, just all kinds of fantasies about what culture was were destroyed during that time. And so I just find that a completely fascinating time where people were trying to learn, you know, entirely different ways of being that they had no no concept of how to do so that's one period that's fascinating for me 
And if you could be a fictional character, I guess, in that time, <laughs> in a historical film or series, who would Teresa be? Oh, I would be Winston Churchill. <laughs> because, and here's why. He's because not fictional, though. <laughs> I know, I know. But, okay, so you want we me to said do it. in a series. So in it's a, a series. series about Winston Churchill. <laughs> right, right. I mean... The thing about adaptive leadership for me is that I would love to be that directive leader. I would I I started out life being that directive leader and learned the hard way that you can't do it. So I think that my fantasy is that by being somebody like a Churchill who was able to make all these decisions in World War II that helped save the country, you know, that's my fantasy. I know it's not true, but it's my fantasy. So it's the leadership role because Winston Churchill did have some not so pretty moments, wonderful moments. Um, Back to context. And he's a fascinating example of before World War II, he was reviled. During World War II, they needed his kind of skills. After World War II, he was reviled. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what the context is again. So we always ask our guest if they were putting together a time capsule that represents their own life history, what three items would they put in that time capsule? So I've been thinking about this since you presented that question to me. And I keep coming back to like my laptop, my iPad and my iPhone, because that connectivity that we have, it's not even just about connecting through the web, which is, which totally changed our lives. You know, what was that 30, 40 years ago? Um, Then it's about having access to things all the time and being connected to people primarily through media and, and how it interconnects with, with each other, the, the phone, the iPad, the computer. I don't think I could live without those three. (laughs) So it is completely change the way that we interact with the world to have access to media in the kinds of ways that we do now. I think I'm asking you the most important question of this podcast. Who is your favorite Queen Elizabeth II from the Crown series and why? Oh, I love Claire Foy. Foy. <laughs> Team Foy. That used to. I mean, she. I love the way she changes over time. And she changes much more dramatically than the um, than the later ones. But to see how she grows and how she she's just such an excellent actress in terms of that that innocence that she portrays that you can see falling from her eyes almost literally over the series is just fascinating. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. 
Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.